So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Revelation 4. And we want to look at uh, the whole chapter tonight. So we'll try to move quickly. Revelation 4. I've titled the lesson, The Lord God Almighty Reigns. The Lord Jesus has given a word to each of the churches of Asia. We've listened to those letters being read as John's recorded them. We've learned lessons about those churches and our own because indeed it's the constant call of the Lord Jesus to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's an active word, an ongoing word. And now we come to this chapter, two chapters indeed, four and five, where we pause for a moment to consider God and the Lamb. Because very soon we will find ourselves unfolding the story of judgment upon the world. We'll come to chapter 6 and there will be the breaking of the seals. And then we'll hear the blasting of the trumpets and the pouring out of the bowls. And as all of these judgments come to us in succeeding intensity, we'll find ourselves facing both the increasing wickedness of the human heart in rebellion against God and the Lamb and the intense, pure wrath of God poured out upon those who rebel against Him. And we will find ourselves wrapped with the terrifying, holy judgment of God and wondering how indeed a person is to stand in the midst of that. And so before we come to the pouring out of these judgments of God upon the earth, the Lord gives a vision to John first of himself. He brings him into heaven's throne room in the power of the Holy Spirit at the invitation of the Son of God. John is transported into the presence of God on the throne and has a clear vision of who God is and of what God is worthy. And it is this that sets his foundation and our own to be able to endure the succeeding message that comes from the Lord Jesus himself. So John begins by giving us the promise of revelation. In verses 2 and 3, we will see the person of the Lord God Almighty in verses 4 and 5, we will see the presence of the Lord God Almighty. And then we will end in verses 8 through 11 by talking about the praise of the Lord God Almighty. And I want us to spend our time taking all of this in and we'll come down to the very end of the lesson and consider four thoughts or four lessons from the throne room. But first, let's read together the passage, and then we'll begin to walk through it. John says in chapter 4 and verse 1, After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. 
And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. John brings us into the presence of God and the Lamb. And in doing so, he prepares us with the comfort of God's sovereignty, of his reign, his control over the world. He prepares us with this control to look at a world that seems to be out of control. In verse 1, in the first part of verse 2, you see the promise of revelation. John says, after this, I look. So after what? Well, after he's heard the message of the Lord Jesus concerning the churches of Asia. After he's had this initial experience that in chapter 1, he describes as being in worship. Chapter 1 and verse 10, he describes as being in worship, in the Spirit, on the Lord's day. And he heard a voice that sounded like a trumpet. And when he turned, he described the presence of the Son of God. And John has had this experience of seeing the Son of God and hearing this one who is like the Ancient of Days, who is like the Son of Man, hearing this one speak about his churches that he controls, that he knows intimately. And it's after this, John says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. John is commanded by the first voice, the voice of the Lamb, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to come up here. The the word come up here is, it's an imperative. It's something he must do. It's an instruction. It's a directive. It's a command. So the voice of the Lamb is here described as a trumpet, even as it is in chapter 1. It's a startling, piercing, commanding voice. It's not a trumpet, it's like a trumpet. And this trumpeting voice bids John into the presence of God. He doesn't know that yet, but he will soon see the presence of the Father. John is bid into the presence of the heavenly throne room. He is bid to come up here. 
And it is here that the Lamb will reveal what must take place after this. So focus on that phrase for a moment. When John says, what must take place after this? Break that apart into two sections. And the first is that John says, what must take place? The reality that Jesus, the Son of God, invites John, bids him into the presence of the Father to see what must take place demonstrates that there is a plan for the world in which we live. Sometimes you and I believe that the world is without hope, that it is spinning out of control, that no one could stop the decay and destruction of the world in which we live. But time and again... Civilization has declined and then risen because of the plan of Almighty God to order human history to His great glory. And here is a reminder as civilization once again is on the bent toward destruction, on the road of decay, as it seems as though the world has no conclusive end except to die. Here is a word that says God has order in the middle of these things. There is a plan in place. There is, there is something being accomplished. The whole of the Bible is a revealing of God's ordered plan. What theologians call progressive revelation. That is that we start with just a little bit of understanding in Genesis and the further we read, the more we understand about God's revealed plan for the world. In Genesis 3, it's just a word of good news as you hear, as you hear God say that the serpent would, would bruise the heel of the seed of woman, and that that seed of woman would crush his head. And that one little word of good news, the first gospel, it develops throughout the story of the Bible until it blossoms in a manger and has its fulfillment at the cross and the empty tomb. God has ordered the world. There are things that must take place. Because God is bringing history to its rightful conclusion. And then John says it's not just what must take place, but it's what must take place after this. Those words, after this, are used often in the Revelation. In chapter 1, in verse 19, in chapter 7, in verse 1, in, in verse 9, in chapter 15, in verse 5, in 18, in verse 1, in 19, in verse 1. And in all of those circumstances, the words after this, they signal a shift of the scene or of the focus of, of the description of what's being, what's being centered in on. That's the case here as John is moving further into the presence of the Lamb to whom he has been listening and at whom he has been looking from a distance. So understand this. There's a lesson here. That the closer you get to Jesus, the more you understand about the plan and purpose of God. It's John's closeness to Jesus Christ. It's his coming into his presence. It's his obedience of his command that causes him to understand more of what the Father has willed. And so it is with me and so it is with you. John is transported upward into the presence of this first voice. And that transport happens in the Spirit. This is not the first time this has happened. 
John was transported in the Spirit on the day of worship in verse 1, in chapter 1 and verse 10. It's a reminder that what John experiences here is otherworldly. This is not happening in the flesh. It's a vision or a trance, but one superintended by the Spirit. This whole experience of what John is seeing and writing about and hearing from God, this whole experience is superintended by the Holy Spirit in whose power and presence John was worshiping when he first heard the voice of the Lamb. And so John is transported into the presence. And it's there that he begins to see the person of the Lord God Almighty. He says in verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of a jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. It's in the Spirit that John is transported upward, although it's less of a journey and more of an appearance. Because it happens at once, immediately. What John encounters in this scene shift is a throne that stood in heaven. And he tells us that the throne was occupied. Here is the leading scene of comfort for John and those who read his revelation. That before showing what must take place after this, the Lamb first bids and the Spirit first brings into the presence of the one who reigns over all creation because he is the Creator. The scenes that will be depicted of the end of days are filled with dreadful, fearsome, terrifying depictions of the last stands of the wicked and the awesome wrath of God poured out over them in response. So before we read of those things, we who trust in the Lord need a clear vision of the reality of the Lord who is in control. John is not the first person who's had such an experience of a spirit-empowered encounter of the throne room of heaven or the Holy One who reigns upon the throne. There are two prophetic writings that should come to mind for us. Of course, the first is Isaiah. You remember in the sixth chapter, Isaiah's great missionary calling and Isaiah's calling to preach until their eyes are blinded and their ears are dulled and their hearts are hardened comes out of an experience of the throne room of God. Isaiah says that he was in the temple and he saw the Lord sitting high upon the robe, uh, high upon the throne and the, the train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who spoke, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah has this experience of heaven's throne room, and what he sees is God who is immense. God who is so grand and glorious that though, though he doesn't describe the Lord himself, he describes everything about the Lord's presence. That God is big and massive and fills the space with his majestic robe and that God is surrounded by orders of angelic beings that add to his majestic glory. 
by their own burning brilliance. Ezekiel tells us of a similar experience. I won't read this all, but go back and read Ezekiel chapter 1, the first 28 verses, and there you, you get this wonderful demonstration of the, of the experience of God and His presence in heaven. Ezekiel tells us first in this, in this passage about these four living creatures, we'll return to them, these four living creatures that he saw, Unlike John's living creatures, Ezekiel's have four faces. There are four of them with four faces each. And the four faces are that of a human and a lion and an eagle and an ox. And these four living creatures have chariots. And these chariots have all sorts of working of wheels in them. You remember this tremendous thing that Ezekiel describes trying to convey what he sees. But then as Ezekiel goes on, he comes down and he says, I went and heard the sound of their wings, these, these living creatures, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse of their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in the appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it, I saw it as were a likeness of gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. And like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so it was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking." Those passages are in view as John tries to describe what it is he sees in the power of the Spirit in the throne room of God Himself. John describes the person who occupies the throne. It isn't until he hears the cries of the four living creatures in chapter 1 and verse 8, or excuse me, chapter 4 and verse 8, that he can be sure of who is on the throne but it is the Lord God Almighty. John describes the, his appearance using terminology available to him. He paints the picture using the radiant, uh, radiance of jewel tones and the splendor of a rainbow. Possibly that's a reference to Genesis 9, 8-17 about God's covenant-keeping nature. But notice that John doesn't describe the physical nature of the Almighty. It's because God the Father is spirit. Jesus teaches us that in John 4 and 24. Paul understood the difficulty of helping mankind imagine the Father who himself has no image in and of himself, but has imaged himself in Jesus Christ the Son. Paul conveyed the splendor of the Father in this way in 1 Timothy chapter 6 
when he said to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in what Paul calls unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion amen the description of the throne room of heaven of the presence of the father is indescribable and so john uses the best language he has like ezekiel like isaiah like the apostle paul and so as we listen to these words talking about the radiance of the presence of God with a rainbow like an emerald and jasper and carnelian, we have to be careful that rather than searching for meaning in each piece of John's description of the Father, we instead allow John to paint one overarching picture. Not to be picked apart as allegory or symbol because John hasn't defined how these pictures are to be understood. Instead, we're to listen to John's description and understand that John is trying to describe the glory of God Almighty who by his innate holiness and righteousness radiates purity and resides in splendor in a way unlike anything mortal man has ever seen or in which mortal man could ever dwell apart from love's redeeming work. And so John quickly moves from describing the person of Almighty God to describing his presence. Look back at chapter 4 and verse 4. There John says that around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. John describes three sights that he sees around the throne of the Lord God Almighty, sights of beings or of entities or persons or creatures. He first describes the 24 elders and then the seven torches of fire, and then the four living creatures. So first, let's think about the 24 elders. John describes the number of the elders. That should stand out to us. It must have some significance. He says there are 24 of them. Sometimes the theologians will say that this is, this is given to represent the wholeness of God's people, 
Perhaps the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 sons of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus. And so it thereby represents those inside and those outside of the covenantal people of God. But it's difficult for us to think that these are real human beings because of the song that the elders sing in chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. There they seem to be distinct from mankind. It says that they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The song of the elders seems to set them apart from those who are a part of the people of God who've been redeemed by Jesus himself. And so a more likely identification of these elders is that they are a class of angelic beings. And among the ranks of angelic beings, they offer more to underscore the splendor of God's majesty. One of the images that I've had in mind as I've thought about the living creatures and the 24 elders, both of whom I'll contend are ranks of angelic beings, one of the things that I've thought about is the scene that that some of you are old enough to remember, uh, that of Queen Elizabeth when she was when she was crowned as queen. I was just watching a documentary on this a few weeks ago, and and they talked about the the dukes and duchesses of that day and how many there were still uh, in that rank of the aristocracy and that it was their right after Queen Elizabeth was crowned, it was their right to wear their, their coronets and their crowns that were in keeping with their rank. And the commentator said that the reason that the dukes and the duchesses wear coronets and crowns is because they point to the splendor of the sovereign. So it is with these ranks of angelic beings. The living creatures and the 24 elders, they are brilliant and and in their own level of splendor and majesty. And their attractiveness, their brilliance, their own personal radiance causes them to underscore the majesty of God himself. When we look at chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, 7, 11 to 17, 11, 16 to 18, 14, verse 3, and chapter 19 and verse 4, we find a consistent description of the 24 elders and that their actions are consistent in each of these cases. Depending on the verses, there are a couple of other things that they do, but here are the two things that they consistently do. The elders always assume the posture of humility. They bow down. And the elders always ascribe praise to God. When we think about the number, that there are 24 of them, we still, I think, have to ask, what does this communicate? 24 is a multiple of 12, and one of the things that we know about the time period in which John is writing and the nature of the genre that he's writing in is that numbers are symbolic and they have meaning and multiples of numbers have meaning. The number of 12, the number 12 is often associated with divine governance. 
There were 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 apostles of Jesus. There are 12 gates and 12 foundations in the New Jerusalem. And there will be 12,000 sealed from every tribe. So multiples of 12 and the number 12 point to divine governance. And that is perhaps in view here. John tells us two things about these 24 elders in terms of their being. He says, one, that they're clothed in white garments. And two, that they have crowns on their head. We must be careful here. These are not the white robes of the redeemed because these are not human beings. They are not the saints, the people of God. So while this is not the imputed righteousness of Christ worn by the people of God, these white garments do represent the holiness necessary for dwelling in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. That the elders are crowned points to their status. They are beings with position. There's something significant, even majestic, about them. And they add to the splendor of God. They adorn his sacred and supreme majesty. John first sees the 24 elders, and then he sees the seven torches of fire. In verses 5 and 6, John talks about what comes from from the throne. He says that there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder before the throne were burning the seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. John's description of the brilliant sights and booming sounds emanating from the throne recalls the description of Mount Sinai in Exodus 16, in Exodus 19, verses 16 to 19. John tells us often in the Revelation about lightning and thunder. In chapter 8 and verse 5, in chapter 11 and verse 19, in chapter 16 and verse 18, at each of those points, God is on the move. His work is being done. His will is being revealed. And it is always accompanied by lightning and thunder. And so it is here that the presence of God is accompanied by these majestic sights and sounds that convey the awesomeness, power, and might of the God who sits on the throne ruling over all creation. And John tells us that he saw before the throne burning seven torches of fire. John understood those seven torches to be the seven spirits of God. Four times in the Revelation, John refers to the seven spirits. Both here and in chapter 1 in verse 4, the seven spirits are before the throne of the Father. In chapter 3 in verse 1, the Son holds in His hand the seven spirits. And in chapter 5 in verse 6, the seven spirits are sent out into all the earth. The number seven stands for completeness or wholeness. So when John refers to the seven spirits, he is not speaking about seven individual spirits, but about the wholeness or fullness of the Holy Spirit. John has been brought into the throne room at the invitation of the Son, and there he encounters the Father on the throne, and before the throne, the Holy Spirit, ever powerful and illuminating as symbolized by torches of fire. John continues to describe the wonder of the throne room. There is before the throne something like a sea of glass, like crystal, John says. Don't fail to listen to John's words. Here, as at many other points, he uses figurative language. He's employing the best wording to describe what he sees when what he sees is often indescribable. So it's as if it were a sea of glass. It's as if it were a crystal sea. But it's not glass. 
and it's not crystal. So I think it's right here to recall what we said about the presence of the throne and the presence of the Father. Where we hear in verses 2 and 3 that description of carnelian and jasper and an emerald-like rainbow. Here we hear the description of a crystal sea. And rather than seeing it as symbolizing anything that John does not refer to, we should instead understand that this adds to the depth and grandeur of the description of the presence of God himself. Then John says that he sees the four living creatures. He says around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within like the 24 elders, these are, I believe, a rank of angelic beings. They are described often and much like the cherubim in Ezekiel and the seraphim in Isaiah. They seem to re represent the highest order of angels, creatures that live to the glory of God and magnify his praise in all places. Ezekiel described four living creatures, each with four faces, that of a human, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And surely this is in the background, though adapted to fit what John sees. Ezekiel also saw that living creatures were full of eyes in front and behind, or all around and within, as John says. Just as the majesty of the elders enhances the majesty of the Lord God Almighty, so the eyes of the creatures enhances the complete knowledge of and vigilance toward the earth that marks the Lord himself. Isaiah is in the background as well here. As John says that these creatures have six wings, much as the seraphim in Isaiah's vision did. You remember that the seraphim in Isaiah's vision they had six wings, with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they continually cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And here they resound the holiness of God in John's vision and describe both His holiness and His eternality as they declare that He is the one who was and is and is to come. The person of the Lord God Almighty, the presence of the Lord God Almighty, and then you see the praise of the Lord God Almighty. In chapter 4 and verse 8, we hear the four living creatures lead the worship of the Lord. It says there in verses 8 and 9 that the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. I want you to note three aspects of the worship of the living creatures. And the first is this, the living creature's worship of God acknowledges revealed truth. The living creature's worship of God acknowledges revealed truth. 
So the description that John gives us about these living creatures is that they are full of eyes without and within, all around. They have these eyes that are looking over, looking over the world, but also looking over the presence of the Father. Like Isaiah's vision of the seraphim, John tells us that these living creatures, they continually call out praise to the Lord and they never end in their description of the holiness of God. This is not because these beings are stuck like a broken record. It is because they are ever discovering more about the worth and the brilliance of the God that we serve. Like a diamond that is shining in the light and being turned so that at every turn you take in more of its brilliance. So the Father on the throne in heaven is on display and the living creatures seeing Him all around are ever caused to give praise by what is revealed to them of His character. What they cry out in worship shows at least two truths that have been revealed to them. The first is that they have come to know that God is perfectly holy. Like the seraphim in Isaiah's vision, the living creatures cry out in the triad, Holy, holy, holy. In the English language, we have good, better, best. But in Hebrew... There is no good, better, best. If you want to convey the intensity of something, then you have to say it multiple times. And so when Isaiah had this vision and he heard the seraphim crying out, holy, 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 that was the way of saying that God is the best holy one. He's the holiest of the holies. Of all the things that could be set apart in their perfection, in their beauty, in their righteousness, in their separatedness from the world, God is the most intense and immense of them. He's the holiest one. And the living creatures affirm that. They look at God with all of their eyes and as they take God in, the only thing they can say about Him is, God, you're holy. You are righteous. You're the purest one there's ever been. And as they take in the Father, they also come to know that He is eternally existent. There's something in them that recognizes we have not always been here, but He has. He's the holy, uncreated One. He was, and He is, and He is to come, the Almighty. The worship of God by the living creatures, it acknowledges revealed truth. Number two, the living creatures' worship of God ascribes continual praise. It ascribes continual praise. It says that they worship without ceasing day and night. We'll come back in a moment to this. And think about how this applies to our own lives and our own visions of God and heaven and eternity. But for the moment, I just want to say that they were never without reason to praise God and so they never stopped praising Him. 
One of the things that we'll make note of in a moment is that that praise is vocal, but that praise is also in terms of a lived vocation, a life that actually works to the glory of God. There are ways for us to do things that ascribe glory to God. We reverence Him. We set Him apart. Their worship ascribed continual praise. And then number three, the living creature's worship of God, it affects the worship of others. Because what you see is that when they worshiped, it prompted the 24 elders to worship. So let's look at their worship. It says in verses 9 through 11, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, and notice, just pause for a moment, notice that John doesn't write that in the past tense, but the present, whenever they give. So what John is describing is something that not only was going on in his day, but something that is going on in our own. That while we are here and we see with a veiled eye on this side of eternity, there is a spirit world that, is, that exists. And in that world, the living creatures and the elders are giving praise to God and the Lamb. So whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. The 24 elders are prompted by the four living creatures to offer their own worship to God. They do so by casting their crowns before the throne. This act conveys that God is the source of the authority they have. Their might and majesty stem from and return to the Lord. Their continual acts of worship are a check on pride, a way of cultivating humility in their own hearts so that even as angelic beings, they never fail to see God as the source of their power. They declare the worth of, the, of their Lord and God and they list what he is worthy of. And I want us to really pay attention here. They say that he is worthy of glory, honor, and power. And I don't know, but I think often we list those things without really giving consideration to what they are. And if you'll give for a moment consideration to what it really means to give God glory, honor, and power, it might change your worship. So the word glory is the Greek word doxa, you can imagine that's where we get our word doxology. Um, we often think of doxology as a nice little reflective chorus that we sing. That's part of it. But the word doxa, glory, means the heaviness or the weightiness that something has in terms of its worth. When the living creatures are, inspire the worship of the elders and the elders say that God is worthy of glory, they're saying that God is worthy of the weight in their life. God is the one who has ultimate value. God is the one who should be, who should be set aside above all things. God should carry 
the heaviness in their life. Glory is the heaviness or weightiness of something in terms of its worth. Honor is its worth in terms of its price. If glory is its worth in terms of its weight, honor is its worth in terms of its price. How would you value the Lord? What's he worth to you? If you had to put a price on God, what is that price? And when the elders say that God is worthy of honor, they are saying that God is more value beyond compare. He's worth more than anything or anyone. I don't know what you might value as the the most precious earthly commodity you could find. There are all sorts of luxuries out there, but those are all beyond reach for the vast majority of us. But certainly in your life, there are things that you value and you would look at and say that that has a high price, but it's it's worth it, right? There are some things like that. Now, now it might be a Coca-Cola on a hot day. Ordinarily, $1.50 from a vending machine would seem an absurdity, but if you're hot and tired and thirsty... A dollar fifty is a fitting price. There are things in our lives that we learn to value and we ascribe prices to and we deem them to be fitting. And then there are other things that we would look at and say, well, I would pay that for something else, but not for that. How do we value God? What's the price we put on him? Is he worth more than anything else in our lives? Then the elders say that God is worthy of power. And if glory is his weightiness and honor is his price, power is the energy, force, or ability a being possesses. And in this case, the elders are saying that we should ascribe to the Lord our ability to maximize God's glory. You have in your life and I have in mine power. We have energy, we have force, we have the ability to possess something. And in our lives, like the elders, we are called to use that force, that energy, that ability to set aside worth, weight, value to God. And this is where we should consider that our worship of God is not just what we vocalize. It's not just the prayers that we pray or the songs that we sing or the reading or preaching of the word. Those things are core to our worship, but they should not be seen as the entirety of our worship. Because in your life, you can use force, energy, the ability to ascribe power to something to say, God, you have the real value in my life. It might happen as you make your annual budget and decide, I'm going to allow God to have primacy of place as I steward the financial resources that I have. Or or it could be that as you think about the time 
that you have during the week to give. You say, I'm going to invest more in the service of others in the name of Jesus Christ rather than in the pleasuring of myself. Or it could be in the stewardship of those hours early in the morning or late in the evening before the demands of the world come to you when you could spend time in front of the television. You ascribe it to God power by saying, God, I want to maximize your glory by being in your book and dwelling in your presence. There are ways for us in practical terms to ascribe power to God. To say, God, I could act like I'm the one in control. Instead, I'd like to ascribe that control to you. Would you have your will and your way in me? The elders not only tell us what God is worthy of, but they say why he is worthy of these things. And it is simply this, that he created all things, number one. And number two, by his will, they existed and were created. We should never miss the reality that God's nature as our creator is intimately connected to his nature as our redeemer. You cannot, you cannot rightly understand God as redeemer without understanding God as creator. So let me in the moments that we have left give you four lessons from the throne room. So we think about all these verses. Here are four, four lessons that I've taken away. And I know sometimes I give you nice, very simple sentences or rhyming words, but but these are long thoughts. So I'll try to read them slowly and thoughtfully. The first lesson that I see from the throne room is this. Access to the presence of the Father, the Lord God Almighty, comes at the invitation of the Son, and through the powerful ministry of the Spirit, there is no other way. Access to the presence of the Father, the Lord God Almighty, comes at the invitation of the Son, and through the powerful ministry of the Spirit, there's no other way. Number two, the presence of the only God should be more than your mind can fathom. And his power should be more than your heart can bear. If you can contain the wonder, awe, splendor, majesty, renown, and brilliance of God, then you do not actually know him. The God that we serve is inconceivable. He is indescribable. He is unfathomable. We get pieces of him, glimpses of his glory. But if we ever think that we know him in his fullness, then it is not the only God that we are actually serving and seeking. Number three, the worship of God is never ceasing because the character of God is ever unfolding. We will never run out of reasons to give praise to the Lord. The worship of God is never ceasing because the character of God is ever unfolding. We'll never run out of reasons to give praise to the Lord. And then number four, and I want you to listen very closely to what I have to say here. 
at the heart of heaven. At the heart of heaven. It's not the patriarchs, the priests, the prophets, or the pastors. At the heart of heaven is not the good who died young, or the saints who died old, or the loved ones whose death broke your hearts, or those whose death caused you to take account of your own life. At the heart of heaven is the triune Lord, who eternally exists and eternally reigns over the world that he created for his own glory and good pleasure. If you do not want him more than anything else, you're settling for the pleasures of hell itself. I know sometimes we think about heaven in terms of seeing the people that we miss desperately. But if your vision of eternity doesn't center on a unity with the God who gave and saved your life, then you've missed what it's all about. Heaven is all about God. And you're dwelling with Him. Him being with you as your God. And you being with Him as His people. And Him wiping away every tear from your eyes. And death and sorrow being no more. At the core, at the heart of heaven is God. And everything else is idolatry. So go with John to the throne. And in the power of the Spirit, at the bidding of the Son, gaze upon the brilliance of the Father. He is the Lord, God Almighty, and He reigns. Father, we pray that You, by Your Holy Spirit's power, would give us a vision of your brilliance and majesty and splendor, and that we would value more than anything else you, because everything else fails in comparison. May we know on the day that we breathe our final breath the hope of eternal life because we have heard Jesus Christ Say, come up here, and we have heeded his call by faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.